Let us all rejoice in our God as we come into his presence this morning to honor and glorify him. Such a privilege to do that. We'll be talking about what's involved in worshiping him in spirit this morning, and we're glad that you're here for that purpose, to honor the God of heaven. How to worship him in spirit is the question of the lesson this morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the familiar text in John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria. He encounters a woman at a well near Sychar, has uh, quite a discussion about her, with her about not only her life, but the water of life which he is offering her. And then the discussion changes as we come to verse uh, 20. And the woman has a question for Jesus. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's a Samaritan. They're within a stone's throw of Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had worshipped for some centuries at this time. And so she only needs to nod over her head perhaps to say, our, our people worship on this mountain right here, the one maybe even that we're looking at. But then she continues, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither work on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So it is our objective, certainly, to worship our God in spirit and truth. This is what God expects of us. These are the worshipers that God will accept, and these are the worshipers, therefore, that we want to be. Worship itself is showing affection to God. The word that's translated worship in this text and in many places in our New Testaments uh, is a Greek word, proskuneo. It just comes etym etymologically uh, from the Greek. It means to kiss toward, to kiss toward. But really the idea is of showing affection, of showing adoration. We show in worship that we love God. And when you love somebody... You do it with your inner being. You do it with what's inside of you, and it comes what what comes what comes from inside of you is exhibited in outward manifestations. A kiss is not just a kiss, right? What's behind it? What's the motivation in one's heart? Love, true love, a deep love. Expressing adoration for God is what is to come out in our worship. In this text, Jesus points the woman and us to a new level of worship. He says, used to be, used to be that uh, place mattered. Place mattered. But maybe not so much anymore. What's new and different about this new level of worship? Well, it no longer matters where, but how. It used to be, in Old Testament times, up until the time that Jesus came, God had specifically told the children of Israel through Moses, you worship me where I say. He repeatedly says that. Where I say. And so all of this worship that was supposed to be to Jehovah, that was on every uh, green hill throughout Israel, <laughs> 
uh, every high place. That was completely unacceptable to God because that's not where he said to worship him. Where was important. And Jesus tells the woman, your where is wrong. <laughs> we Jews, we, we know what we're doing. Salvation is of the Jews. But he quickly shows her that that's not really even the big issue. Not anymore, it's not. It's not where, but how. The contrast that Jesus makes when we think about what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth in a way that that wasn't being done before. Didn't they worship in spirit and in truth in the Old Testament in some way? So what is Jesus contrasting? Now God says you must worship in spirit and in truth. How does that differ from whatever came before? I think that's an important question to answer. What's Jesus contrasting? What's Jesus saying about this new level of worship that was different from what came before? The contrast I want to say to you this morning is not between sincere worship and insincere worship. Because God has never accepted insincere worship. Not ever. And so, back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, loving God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, that's what God expected of the Israelites. Nothing less. Jesus, you might remember, said, well, that's, that's the first and great commandment right there. Was in the Old Testament, still is, I take it. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, Joshua told the children of Israel, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. I can't tell much difference between what Joshua says regarding worship and what Jesus is saying regarding worship. Joshua says, worship Him in sincerity and in truth. Jesus says in spirit and in truth. We're going to see sincerity is something that is in spirit. So, obviously, the contrast is not between the insincere and the sincere. The contrast is not between God-ordained and human inventions. God doesn't accept people worshiping Him by their own contrivances, by the stuff that they make up. God doesn't accept that. There may have been a time in Old Testament times, as uh, Paul says it to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, when God winked at, as one translation says, worshiping Him in unauthorized ways, as the Gentiles did because they didn't know what He authorized. But now He commands all to worship Him through His Son. In Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, quoting from Isaiah, about the Jews of his day, this people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. God wasn't going to accept that then, not in the Old Testament, and not now. Was not going to accept people worshiping according to the commandments of men. The contrast then is between something else, right? What's new? What's a higher level about this worship that Jesus is calling us to? The contrast is between the incomplete and the perfect, between the copy and the ideal, between the shadow and the substance. So we in Christ today can worship in an ideal relationship, in a real relationship which those before Christ came could only imagine because they only had copies and shadows of it. Now we enter into the very presence of God 
to worship through our perfect high priest, to have a perfect sacrifice to come before Him. And the temple is His people, and the motivation for worship is in the heart. When you go to the book of Hebrews, I think that Hebrews says this clearly. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 9 and 10, starting in verse 8 actually, the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. You couldn't actually go into the actual presence of God. Boy, that's new and different. We had a lesson on that not long ago, right? That when we pray, we're actually going into God's presence. That could only be dreamed of by the Israelites, only one of whom once a year could even go into the holy place. Or the holiest place. That's new and different. That was what they had back then, symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make Him who performed the service perfect in regard to the, regard to the conscience. It concerned only foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. That's what we're in. The time of Reformation. This new and higher level of worship. In chapter 10 and verse 1, the law had a shadow of the things to come, but not the very image of the things. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He's taking, saying that God is now expecting us to come out of the shadow and into the substance of a relationship with Him. He's calling us to something higher. In chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, in verse 1, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of His Majesty in the heavens, minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Notice the word true. True worshipers. That's what Jesus is talking about to the woman, the woman at the well, right? The true worshipers. Now we can go to the true tabernacle. So all of that has to be kept in mind as we further go on and discuss what does it mean to be a true worshiper? What does it mean specifically to worship in spirit? We need to understand that God does not need our worship, but He deserves it. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands as though He needed anything from us, Paul again says in Acts 17. He gives life and breath to all things. He doesn't need it, but He deserves it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29, give to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Jesus' message is that real worship is not determined by race. It's not determined by place. It's determined by the spirituality of our praise to God according to His Word. It truly is a new and living way as we are partakers of this new covenant mediated by Christ Himself. Jesus points us to this level of worship. But again, what does the in-spirit aspect of this 
really point us to. That which is done in spirit involves the inner self. I think most of us understand that. If I say, um, I've got spirit, yes I do. I've got spirit, how about you? You may have heard something like that at a basketball or football game sometime. What do we mean? Well, I'm into this, right? My inner being is rooting for my team. Something inside me is going on. Worship in spirit involves the inner self. It may involve the emotions, but I want to say at the outset, it involves a whole lot more than the emotions. To many people, something done in spirit is something that is done enthusiastically, as I've indicated. I want us to broaden, we need to broaden, from a biblical standpoint, our perception, our conception, our idea about what it means to do something in spirit or in the inner man. Because I do think that many people just equate that with emotion. And there's way more in the inner man than emotion. Notice with me a few things. Things done in spirit, according to Scripture, include being honest. Look at Psalm 32 and verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, honesty comes from inside you, doesn't it? Honesty is not an emotion, folks. In whose spirit there is no deceit. A true spirit. One who speaks the truth in his heart. As the Psalms elsewhere say. Honesty is something that is inner. Sorrow for sin. Now that involves some emotion. It involves more than that. It involves conviction about sin. Which is an aspect of our mind or our mental processes. But notice Psalm 34 and verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Contrite. I'm sorry for my sins. I want to I make up for it. I want to do better. That's the idea of contrition. Psalm 57, 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Then, the spirit, or doing something in spirit, involves steadfastness and faithfulness. Listen to Psalm 51 and verse 10. When David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We're talking about things that are within us. Steadfastness is not an emotion. Faithfulness is not an emotion. But it's part of what happens in spirit. Steadfast. To do it, to keep on doing it, to be faithful in doing it. Psalm 78 and verse 8. May not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not set its heart aright and in, in whose spirit and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Spirit was not faithful to God. A spirit can be steadfast and faithful. A spirit can be unsteadfast and unfaithful. Or we can be that way in our spirits. In spirit, we search for understanding. And we search for truth. 
Psalm 77 and verse 6. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. My, my spirit makes diligent search. Well, again, searching is not an emotion. It may be motivated by an emotion. But it's something that we do in spirit. So, to worship in spirit then, I hope we've now, just by that, already, already really broadened our concept of what doing things in spirit means. If I were to worship in spirit, could we say, I, I worship honestly and truly? If I worship in spirit, could I say, I'm sorry for my sin when I worship in spirit? Could I say, I'm going to be faithful in my worship? And that's also worshiping in spirit, faithfulness. Could we say we're searching for truth and understanding and that's worshiping in spirit as well, right? That's part of it, isn't it? Desiring God's help in time of distress. That's part of what's done in spirit. Psalm 43 and verse 4. My spirit is overwhelmed within me and then the psalmist pleads for help from God. So the person who worships in spirit may have all of these things going on and many others that we're going to mention and look at, but these, I think, are clearly th th things that happen in spirit. The person who worships in spirit submits himself to the law of God. And here is where, my friends, many folks nowadays miss it when they think about worshiping in spirit. Because they miss the need for the spirit to submit to the law of God, to subject itself to the law of God. I want you to go over to the book of Romans with me. I know Paul is not specifically talking about worship in this section in Romans uh, chapter 8. But the concepts of what, what do, doing something in spirit means, I, I think are undergirded by what Paul has to say here. He says in Romans 8 and verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And the word carnal means fleshly, earth-based. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So how can I be subject to the law of God? Well, it's got to be in my spirit. You see, subjection occurs in your spirit. It's not an emotion, but subjection, the idea that I am putting myself under someone else and their authority is going to hold sway over me, that concept is what subjection is, and it has to happen in the spirit. And so if I claim to be worshiping God in spirit, but I'm doing things that are not subject to God's law, in other words, contrary to God's law, or different from God's law, or added to God's law, I am not subject to the law of God. And I'm not worshiping in spirit. No matter what I may claim. Which brings me to this. There is hardly anything more carnal than doing something in service of our own feelings and emotions. that is about the most carnal thing a person can do. Well, we're going to worship this way because we feel good. Because I get this 
emotional high. Because I want to feel that way. And so worship then becomes all about how we're feeling instead of who we're honoring. And that's frankly where just a whole lot of folks miss it when it comes to worshiping God today. And so, are we showing love for God when what we're doing is actually in service of our own emotional sense and feelings? Spiritual does not equal emotional. God designed emotions, and they're important. He has given us emotions. He has emotions. Emotions follow facts and lead to actions. They follow facts and they lead to action. We're living in an age of emotionalism where the world is completely turned upside down. In our postmodern thinking about what truth is, our emotions, rather than being followers of truth, our emotions are allowed to determine what we say truth is. Again, it's completely backwards of the way God has designed us and designed this world. We view matters more from the standpoint of our feelings than from reason or from morals. Someone who is an emotionalist, this is defined by Webster, is one who practices the art of exciting emotions in others, a sensationalist. Emotionalism, which is what I'm talking about here, that's led us astray, is undue indulgence in or the display of emotion, a tendency to regard things emotionally, the cultivation of the superficial emotions, the tendency to yield to the emotional or exalt the emotions, to view matters more from feeling than from reason. All of that from an extended Webster's definition. Emotions are terrible decision makers. Terrible decision makers. But they're amazing motivators. In fact, the word emotion actually means to be motivated. Emotion. Puts you in motion. That's what an emotion's for. It gets you going. As I said, emotions must follow facts but lead to actions. They're so important in doing that. Emotionalism is the absence of reason, the denial of objective truth, and the rejection of valid evidence. So that brings me to this, that worship in spirit is worship in faith. Worship in spirit is worship in faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love. When we hold fast to God's pattern, we're doing that in faith. And I want to tell you that faith is something that happens in spirit. Faith happens in spirit. It's within us. And faith holds fast the pattern of sound words. Sticks to what God has said. The Scriptures teeth, 
teach that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Jeremiah 10, 23 tells us that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walks to direct his steps. See, in my, in my spirit, in myself, I don't have the way to go. The way to go must correspond to something God has said. The faith that I have in my spirit must correspond to the Word of God that generated the faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And if faith is to be Faith is to be activated in worship then as part of in spirit. It must correspond to what God's word has said. Simple as that. Faith is what we must have if we're to please God. Hebrews 11 teaches us. So, what are we learning here? Emotionalism lies like the devil to the worshiper. Literally, lies like the devil to the worshiper. It says that your spiritual life equals your emotions. No, it doesn't. Your spiritual life does not equal your emotions. It may well, it should involve your emotions, but it doesn't equal your emotions. Emotionalism says you don't love God if you don't feel it all the time. Really? You love your wife, gentlemen, you love your wife 24-7, right? You feel that, you know, all the time? When you're sleeping, everything, whatever, no. You know, you know, feel it all the time, but you know it all the time. Emotionalism says you can't help how you feel. The Bible says our facts direct our emotions. Emotionalism says let your emotions be your guide. See, Obi-Wan Kenobi, trust your feelings, Luke, right? Don't trust your feelings, Luke. Emotions will lead you astray. Emotionalism lies like the devil. But there are emotions certainly involved in worshiping in spirit. And we want to spend this last little part of our lesson this morning just verifying that and looking at, in a couple of places in our worship especially, where those emotions come in. Emotions are produced when taking the Lord's Supper, aren't they? I trust that some of us felt emotions this morning, very deep and powerful ones, as we were taking the Lord's Supper. If you go in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 11, the really well-known passage that we often look at while taking the Lord's Supper or in preparation for it, Paul says uh, in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He tells them, Take, all of you drink it. This is the new covenant in my blood. And then Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning we proclaim the Lord's death in taking the Lord's Supper. We prepare ourselves. We might look at some scenes in the Garden of Gethsemane as Doug did for us this morning in opening up the arrest of Jesus that occurred there. And thinking about what people were thinking in those moments was powerful, wasn't it? Moments that led up to the cross. And Jesus had determined already at that moment in time after praying in agony, Father, let this cup pass from me. He stands there before the mob and He says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? How can you not be moved by that? And we proceed on through the details of Christ giving Himself His body and His blood. We think of the prayer in the garden, the arrest, and on to the cross itself and everything that led up to it with the merciless beatings that He received, the shame and the humiliation and crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The culmination of God's eternal plan and eternal love all coming together at the cross. And finally, Jesus crying out, Into Your hands I commit My spirit and breathing His last. The text tells us that people who walked by that smote their breasts just beat themselves looking at the scene. I want to tell you something this morning, friends and brethren. If we feel that worshiping in spirit means that we need to add something to this God-ordained memorial in order to provoke our emotions, we are defective in both our obedience and our emotions. Paul concluded 1 Corinthians 14 by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. And when brethren want to do something extra sensational with the Lord's Supper, because it's not enough emotion, we got to generate more emotion. They're serving themselves and not God. God is the object of our worship. Paul's plea to the Corinthians is a far cry from what people desire in worship services today. In the minds of so many, the more emotionally driven the services are, the more self-gratifying they are, the better they are. The Scriptures teach us, as we've already said, that it's impossible to please God without faith. 
faith comes from hearing God's word. Let's think about the emotions that are derived from our singing. They're certainly produced when we're singing in spirit. I think, along with many of you, who hasn't been brought to tears or brought to a smile or felt great joy within their hearts, all sorts of different emotions as the authors of our songs, some of them coming right out of the psalms themselves, lead us to think about such deep and important things. Paul says about singing in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, I will sing with the Spirit. When he sings, he's singing with the Spirit. Is he worshiping in spirit? I believe so. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Notice that. Let the word of Christ, he starts out with, dwell in you. That's what has to be in you to worship in spirit. The word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, then teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace where? In your hearts to the Lord. Boy, the in spirit is all over that, isn't it? <laughs> you got the word of God in you. You got the singing and the melody being made in your heart. It's, it's through these things, these kinds of things, that we do in spirit, that God sees most clearly who is inside of us, what we are, and whether or not we love Him. In Proverbs 20 and verse 27, there's an interesting verse. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. See, what I do in spirit is what God is looking at. And when he looks at what I do in spirit, he wants to see my emotions for sure. But that's not all he wants to see. He wants to see faith. He wants to see honesty. He wants to see sincerity. He wants to see steadfastness. Right? He's looking at all of that. He's looking at everything that's in me when I'm worshiping Him to determine whether or not what I am doing in worship is actually showing Him love. And maybe as much as anything He's looking at is the word of my Son in this worshiper. Is it? Is His Word in you? I am satisfied that we cannot worship God in spirit and in truth unless it is. Because that what's, that's what produces the faith to worship. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. Kind attention this morning. I, I pray and hope that things we've discussed will uplift us in our worship and help us understand more fully what's involved in worshiping truly in spirit and in truth. This morning, it may be that you're not in that covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. It may be that you haven't 
accepted his love for you and begun to love him in return by offering yourself to him. There's no better time than right now to do that. God is waiting. He deserves your worship. He deserves you because he gave his son for you. If you would name the name of Jesus and turn away from your own sinful life to live a life for him, be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, you could have that wonderful, loving relationship with the God of heaven. Please come while we stand and while we sing.